So here, here's the deal. I've always found it so interesting, right, that people can see two different things and come up with two completely different, um, one, things that they're seeing, two, meanings, or, um, yeah, they can either extract meaning um, out of something that this one person sees and two different people see completely different things. And, and I was thinking about this, that this last week, and I was thinking that I want to look through the resurrection through the perspective that if it is true, then what does that mean for our lives? Because here's the reality, and there's a premise for our conversation tonight, it's this, that Perspective changes everything. Perspective changes everything. That's to say that the way you interpret, the way that you view, the way that you extract information from something, especially if it is true, has the potential to change your life. And so like I said earlier, today I want to look at the resurrection through the perspective that it is true, and if it is true, it changes everything. Now, you may be here tonight and you don't believe in God or anything like that, and I'm excited you're here and you reject that premise. I would love to talk with you um, after service about that, and um, I'll refer you to the podcast, uh, last week's sermon. We talked all about that, like the historicity, the resurrection, and why I believe that Jesus is who we claim to be. But for today, um, I want to ask and answer this question. What does the resurrection mean for me personally? What does the resurrection mean for me, for you and I personally? And tonight, I want to do something a little different. I want to kind of give you the answer up front, and then together we'll unpack it together. So here's the the answer to it. Um, The resurrection offers total life transformation if you really apply the implications into your life. Now, before we kind of discuss what the offer of total life transformation really looks like, you got to kind of click pause and you got to understand there's a problem first. And the problem is this. Why does your life, does my life need to be transformed? Right? And the problem is this, and I don't want to lose you yet, and so I, I, I'm going to say a churchy term, and then I'm going to define it later. And the problem is that you and, the, uh, and I are sinful. And, and I'm going to define that in a bit, that you and I are sinful, and not just that, that you and I are a slave to our sin. And Paul begins to talk about this in the book of Romans chapter 7. It says this, and it's like a mouthful, so follow along with me. It says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. We're just warming up. (laughs) As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. Here we go. For, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I, like, why do you write like this? Now, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And you want, what? <laughs> like, like, I read that and I was like, huh? Right? Here's what he's saying, right? And here's what Paul is saying, and I wish he said it like this. <laughs> the problem is, is that we don't do what we personally think we should do, right? Don't even include the Bible, the country. I sped on the way over here, right? Like, don't include any laws or anything else, Right? Right? What he's saying is like, yo, you have a standard of like what's good and you can't even keep up to it. Like you fall all the time. You do stupid things all the time. It's like there's these two people inside you that are just waging war. Like you got an angel on one side and a demon on the other. And one's like speed. The other one's like slow down. There's a cop, right? Like all these different things, right? They're just going to war with each other, right? I mean, let me give you a few examples, right? I mean, do you really need another diet book to tell you that like not to eat McDonald's every day and to like run a mile here and there, right? No, of course not, right? Or another teach you to tell you to like study math for some reason, right? Like, no, you don't need that. Or someone to tell you to stop drinking so much. Or another commercial to say that like smoking is bad for your health, right? No. The problem is not that you don't know what to do. It's the problem is that you don't know how to do it. That there is something in you that no matter how much you believe you should do something, you still can't do it. In fact, if you're like me, you often do the opposite of the thing that you wish you did. And that's why you had these, you've had these nights where you wake up in the morning and you go like, 
oh my gosh, right? I mean, like you're so disappointed in yourself and you say things like, you know, I can't believe I, I did that again, right? I mean, I, I swore I wouldn't hang out with those people again, but ugh, and then I, I can't believe I did that, fill in the blank or whatever it may be. I mean, what's wrong with me? I, I know better than this. And, and the truth is this, that there is something inside you and there is something inside me that wants to destroy our relationships, wants to destroy our finances, wants to destroy our, our future, our health. Um, it wants to destroy our relationship with God. It wants to destroy everything about us. And the Bible gives us kind of a, a word. It gives us a, a description, an ideology to describe this, and it calls it sin. And it says that you and I have inherited this thing called sin. And I want you to think of it this way, right? That we all have a heritage, and that heritage um, means that we have inherited certain things from our family members, right? Some of us have, in, have inherited things from our parents like, um, like a good worth ethic, or keen intellect, or caring heart, or some type of relational skills, or the ability to handle money well. But others, right, we've also inherited some negative attributes or, or things as well, like we have a temper like our dad, or we uh, are passive-aggressive like our mom, or we um, are avoiders like our grandparents, and it goes on and on and on and on, right? And Paul says that that thing that makes you do what you don't want to do was inherited. But it's actually, he begins to say that it's so much worse than just this disposition to do that what is wrong. It means something pretty intense. It means that you, it means that I are fundamentally wrong. He kind of says like, hey, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a man named Adam. And Adam messed up, and because he messed up, we, you, I, became infected with this thing called sin, this disease called sin. And if you have questions about that, come talk with me later. It's called federalism, but I don't want to bore you with the details. But essentially, here's what Paul is saying. He says, and the bad news is there is no cure on this side of heaven. But the good news is, and really what the message of Easter is, is that God brought heaven down to cure us. And that's kind of the message of Easter. And Paul begins to talk about this in the book of Romans chapter 7. He says this. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's kind of what Paul is saying. He's saying that, like, that Jesus Christ is this answer. He's the one that has the ability to deliver us out of slavery that we've caught ourselves into, into sin. And if you go a chapter um, behind this in Romans chapter 6, and he says something even more interesting. He says this. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And you're like, what on earth is this thing talking about, right? Because when you think of baptism, you think of like, you know, like, you know, your pastor says like, do you believe in Jesus? You're like, cool, and you're like, dunked, right? Like, that's what you think of baptism. But I, I want to change your view on baptism when he's talking about it here. When he's talking about baptism, here's what he means. To put something into something else. To put something into something else. In short, you could summarize what Paul is saying in this verse like this. Don't you know that when you started following Christ, you were placed into Christ and you were taken out of Adam? See, when you were in Adam, what was true of Adam was also true of you. And I think I have a slide for this, right? That Adam was separated from God, so you were separated from God. And or, uh, when he became a slave to sin, right? Like we became a slave to sin. When he was lost, you and I, we also became lost. Now, in a nutshell, here, here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying that you were born condemned because you were related to Adam. Now, if you're not a church person, you never grow up hearing this, like, I get it. You're like, what is this weird dude saying up there? Come talk with me after. I'd love to talk with you and hear your, your, your concerns about this or whatever it may be. But the good news and what Christ offers is, he says, when you put your faith in Christ, you were taken out of Adam's family and you were placed into Christ. And now is what is true of Christ is also true of you. Essentially, that because Jesus was connected to God, you now can be connected to God. Or that because Jesus was not a slave to sin, you no longer have to be a slave to sin either. Or that Jesus knew his purpose, and now you too can know your purpose, the reason that your heart beats inside your chest. So if you're like tracking with me, and you're probably answering the question, okay, well, well how is this possible? 
I mean, how can Christ deliver me from all of this stuff, right? And, and, and really, the, the fundamental question you're asking is, what is the gospel? The gospel, it, it literally means good news, and that's the central question you're, you're, you're answering, you're asking tonight. And, and I want to kind of show you that the two reasons that Easter is truly good news if you've given your life over to Jesus. And here's the first part, and it says that Christ's death and resurrection atones, the big church, old churchy word, I'll explain it, for our sin and makes us right with our creator, once again. Let me unpack this definition or this statement with us. So the word atone simply means to like make amends, right? It means to reconcile, to bring into unity and to restore what was wrong. And so what Paul is saying here is that, um, that Christ's death means and his resurrection um, makes what was wrong between you and God right once again because he paid the high price to reconcile you to God. Now, let me make this make sense. I got like a bunch of illustrations here to like try to make this all make sense with us. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that someone like just comes into your house at, like three o'clock in, in the morning and just like murders your whole family. You're like, well, it's got dark. So just imagine that this happens, right? God forbid, right? But they're caught red-handed. They got like DNA and video and you saw them and they're caught red-handed. And on their trial, the judge hears all of the information. Here's your story, how it's impacted you, how you saw this person, how like he told you his social security number, whatever it was, right? Like you know that this person is the dude that committed this, uh, this atrocity, this intense crime against you. And so the judge hears all this information, knows they're guilty, and then says to the murderer, yeah, um, I've taken all the information into account, and uh, you're free to go. You'd be like, <laughs> like, I'm about to kill him like, outside the court steps. Like, like, what? like, what? What do you mean you're free to go? Right? That's not just. That's not right. And you would say, no, of course that's not just. Right? Because the, the righteous thing to do, or, or that he would have a punishment inflicted upon him. Why? Because he broke a law, but he also did a terrible injustice against you, and he deserves a punishment. That would fundamentally be the thing that is just, the thing that is right. Now, you and I understand that that person would need a, uh, some type of justice, and we have an imperfect sense of justice. And our sense of justice comes from God's sense of justice because we are created in His image. Now, track with me. God is a perfect sense of justice. And here's the problem. We have all violated God's law. And that's essentially, if I teach you a definition of sin, it's that we have violated God's law. But because God's law, and I need you to track with me, because God's law flows from his very nature, what it means is that we have violated the very nature of an infinite God, and that is a huge problem, because it means that our offense is infinite in its very nature. And so track with me. What this means is as finite beings, beings who are not infinite, we can never pay back or atone for our own sins, because the cost is too grave. The cost is too high. The cost is an infinite cost and something that you would never be able to do. No amount of goodness. I like to say it like this way. Like some religions think that you can outweigh your bad by good and like ascend towards God. And I want to th- I, that you can somehow like climb up Mount Everest and the closer you get to the summit, if you can pass like halfway, you're like, you're in the clear, right? I like to think of it as like, sure, the good things you do may get you closer to God. But if the top is not Mount Everest, it's Pluto, you haven't really done yourself anything, Right? I mean, sure, you may become a better person, become more like Jesus, but your good deeds are not the things that are going to save you because the cost of your sin is far greater than anything you or I can pay. And so oftentimes I hear so many people uh, say, well, why Jesus? I mean, why did he have to die of of all people? Why him specifically on behalf of us? Well, let me kind of explain it this way because it's kind of confusing. It's called vicarious substitutionary atonement, but I'm not going to, let me explain it this way. Imagine that, like, I just wind up and I just, like, punch Austin as hard as I can in the face, right? I wrote about it in my diary. It was premeditated. I planned it, right? Like, I just wind up, everything, bam, knock him out, right? And then, exactly, uh, 
Thanks, Don. All right, um, it's like zap, boom. All right, um, and then like I go over to Robert over here and I, and I say, dude, sometimes I just get so antsy. I just get so excited. I just want to just lay people, like just want to just smash their face in. Like sometimes I just do that, right? Robert would go, oh, uh, like that was cool to see and stuff, but like, and I also want to punch Austin, but like I don't, I don't, like I can't forgive you, right? Like I, in no way can I forgive you for that, right? You didn't hit me. So who is the only person in the entire world who can forgive me for that exact offense? The answer is Austin. Why? Because that injustice was made against him. Therefore, he's the only one that can offer me forgiveness for that offense. Now track with me. Likewise, that is why Jesus says he alone can forgive sin. And the reason he says that because he alone is God. And so when he says he can forgive, it's because sin is an offense against God, thereby God being the only one that can say you are forgiven. Now, Easter is, is where we have this kind of interesting intersect. It, it is where, where, where Jesus says something kind of really powerful. He says, like, no to the sin, and then paid with the infinite worth of his life, and then says yes to the sinner. I mean, here's the way that I want you to remember Easter, that the cross is where Jesus stamped with his blood that you are paid in full, and then the resurrection is where Jesus said, I told you so. And that's the good news of Easter, but that's only one part of Easter. Only one part of Easter is all of that. The next part is Easter is it means that you can be reborn. In fact, it means that you have to be reborn. And so you're probably thinking, this is why I don't go to church. Like this weirdo is like talking about sin and like how I suck and how I need to be like reborn. Like what are these weirdos talking about? Tr- track with me, all right? It, it, this account of being uh, where Jesus says you and I need to be reborn is found in the book of John chapter 3. It says this. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now, here's what you need to know. So Nicodemus was like the dude. The Pharisees, the religious uh, elitists, the upper class of, uh, of the Jewish society during uh, Jesus' life, right? So they were like even higher than the rabbis. And so Nicodemus was like the guy. In fact, like the Jews would send him in to like, like squash cults. He was like, most scholars believe, one of the most intelligent people on earth and like one of the, like the world's best debaters at the time, right? And Nicodemus, he got his name because it actually means the conquering one. In fact, that's where Nike got the term Nike. It comes from Nicodemus. Now, here's what's interesting. It says this. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, and he said, Rabbi, now, I don't want you to hear, like, like this as a term of respect, like teacher, moral man, or something like that. He's actually, I want you to, like, go way back when you were, like, 13 and the most sarcastic voice talking to your mom, right? Like, just that nasally, if you're a guy, it was cracking, that voice, all right? And this this is kind of the tone in which he says it. Like, Rabbi, we all know that God sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And this is all sarcastic, like you're a joke, is basically what he's saying. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he goes, what do you mean? Right? Like he's like, and he says this to kind of get the crowd on his side. Like this guy's a lunatic. He's telling us to be reborn. He says this. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And I imagine all the people are like, yeah, what the heck? Like, well, that's a weird image, right? Like, what is he talking about? Well, he continues. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you'll see that all throughout the New Testament, the phrase kingdom of God. From now on, whenever you see the kingdom of God phrase, I want you to insert it with either one, the presence of God, or where God rules and reigns. That's what it means, the kingdom of God. It's either heaven or where God's presence is. Um, You cannot enter the kingdom of God, the presence of God, be near God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So you're reading this and you're like, yo, just like Nicodemus, what the heck is this like dude talking about, right? And here's what he's saying. 
Being born again or reborn essentially just means that you go through a major and a profound change. I want you to think of it this way. Think of how, how radical or, or, or the changes that happen between um, a, how a baby changes in a mother's womb, right? It starts off looking like, like a ninja turtle and like turns into you, right? It's like the most insane thing ever, right? Like how, how the baby like changes. There's these deep, these profound changes in growth that happens in a mother's womb with a baby. Jesus is essentially saying to actually have a relationship with God, to be connected to God, to have a relationship with God and one day go to heaven. You need a change as dramatic as the change that happens in a mother's womb to a baby. That's actually pretty intense. In fact, it's the most offensive statement that any religious figure has ever said in human history. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying that in your natural state, you aren't enough. In your natural state, you are condemned, you are separated, and you are so offensive to me that I can do nothing with you. That is like, that's not like a, yay, Jesus, right? That's not like a, like a, a feel-good message. He's essentially saying that he can do nothing with you as you are, that you actually need to be made completely new. Just like a baby can't change their DNA, you cannot change your spiritual DNA, nor can you change your disposition to do that which is wrong in God's eyes. But it also means that as people, something, something is fundamentally wrong with us. It means that our minds and our hearts and our emotions and our wills are all wrong. They don't interpret things. They don't feel things correctly. What that means is that the things that feel right to you may not be right. The things that sound right to you may not actually be right. And it means that you could have desires that could not be right. And so I've often heard, you know, from students, they said, you know, that all Christianity is is like this big game of, you know, Simon says, but instead of Simon, we got this dude named Jesus, and he tells us a bunch of things not to do, and he's just a buzzkill or kill, kill joy or whatever it may be, right? It's all the things that he doesn't want us to do, and, and I think that we have to ask a question, and the question is, could that not be who God really is? I mean, could God be different, but rather, right, uh, we have this type of conception, this idea, because we want to act on our desires, we want to do what we want to do. And so we see Christianity as a bunch of things that God is not for rather than a bunch of things that he actually is for. Let me give you an illustration to explain it, or I guess I want you to see it this way. You know, often when I take my dog for a walk, scratch that, my wife takes our dog for a walk, um, uh, she's crazy, right? Not my wife, the dog, right? She's insane, right? She's, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's constantly trying to get herself, you know, into trouble, and, and she's pulling on her leash, you know, trying to just break free. And I can only imagine her little, like, one-ounce little corgi brain, right? The, the thought that goes through her mind, right, is if I could only break free, but if I could only just break free from this leash, I would finally be liberated. Yo, if my dumb dog somehow broke free, she would, like, bolt to her death for sure, right? Like, she would, like, run right into oncoming traffic, something, right? She would last two minutes top, tops, right? And I was thinking about that this last week, and it's the leash that allows her to kind of for her to have her best life, right? In other words, for her to flourish. The leash tethers her to what is good and what is safe and what is wholesome, and, and that is the love of her, of, of her owner who loves and cares for her. Now, so, so Christ comes, and he does something kind of interesting. Actually, let, let, me, let me click pause. I, I don't want to go over this point too quickly. See, that is the same when God says things like, those desires that, that you may have are dangerous. And, and, and those desires may lead you astray and as, you know, as you and I bolt off to like our physical and spiritual death, right? I mean, when God says, like, don't have sex before marriage, or when God says things like, you know, be sober-minded or don't watch pornography, it isn't because he's a killjoy. It's because he is for our human flourishing, and those things are poisons to our relationships, to our souls, to ourself, and they lead us away from him who is the very source of life. And so Christ comes in and says that you can be, like, reborn, 
You can be reborn through like my death and, and through the resurrection. And what that means is that your soul and your desires can be regenerated, restored, renewed, and finally, and most importantly, reconnected to God as it always should be. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says this, For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying that you were born with this old self. And this old self was infected with, with this disease called sin, and it's infected your desires, it's affected everything about you because you were related to Adam. But he's saying that the old self has died when you have placed yourself through faith in Christ Jesus. And what this means is that the part, that was ruled, the part of you that was ruled by sin previously no longer has to be ruled by sin any longer because you have been liberated, you have been set free. So your question still remains, right? Like, why do I still do all these things I don't want to do? Why am I still like wilding out and acting like a fool and thinking thoughts that I don't want to think and doing things I don't want to do and saying things that I don't want to do? Well, let me give you another illustration. Imagine that you live in a kingdom in which you are a slave. Every, every area of your life is controlled by this master. And one day, a new king comes and he takes over the land and frees you, liberates you. In fact, he then makes you a part of his royal family. And now you have inherited all of his blessings and all of the benefits of being a part of that new family. Yet, for some of you, you decide that, well, I like being a slave, so I'm going to continue to let that rule over me. Even though you have the ability to live with a new inheritance, you have still chosen the old. See, what Christ is saying here, what Paul is saying here, is the same is true when it comes to sin in our lives. It no longer has to be our master. Like, it no longer has to have sole control over our over our life, yet we can continue to choose it, but because of Christ, we now have an option not to choose those things that are self-destructive in very nature. And so here's what, here's what Easter offers. What it means is that you and I can be pardoned of our sin, that Christ took that punishment, he took that penalty so that you and I don't have to. On the cross, there's this beautiful exchange that happens where Christ laid down his life for you and for me. And now because he laid down his life, you and I get to live the life that he could have lived, or that he did live and that would have lived if he lived longer. So it means that you can be pardoned of your sin. It also means that you no longer need to be a slave to your sin because you can be a new person. You can be reborn. And you can now be a person that has fellowship with your creator. So as we begin to wrap up, I I just want to think, I I think of two things when I think of this statement. When I think of Easter, I think of two things. The first, I think, is of good news. I looked at a study this last week. It said 71% of Americans believe in uh, the resurrection. They believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They believe that he died, that he was divine, that he was the son of God. They believe all of those things. And that's fantastic. But the bad news is, is that you can say you believe all of these things and yet nothing about your life or your eternity will change until you accept the implications of that reality. I mean, let me say it this way. Imagine that you, you saw a, a building that you really wanted to go into for some specific reason. And all over this building, you noticed that it was condemned. And you noticed it was condemned because the, the ceilings were falling apart, the parts of the buildings were collapsing in on itself, and all over it was caution tape and with signs that said, you know, do not enter, danger, you will die if you enter this building. Now, if you were an intelligent person and probably a pretty emotionally healthy person, you wouldn't enter. Why? Because your belief that there is danger in there would change your behavior, your attitude, and your actions. It would not be enough to just give that belief lip service. In other words, to say, uh, yeah, I know this is dangerous as you're like strolling on, in, strolling on in there, right? You would actually have to apply that knowledge and manifest that in action to actually save your life. I wonder, could the same be true about Christianity? I wonder how many people give lip service to their faith but don't actually live like Jesus actually resurrected. 
You know, and it seems like Paul would knew that you and I would have this tendency to give Jesus or Christ or whatever it was lip service, but not actually live like it was true because he says this in Romans 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and the second part, and believe in your heart. And in the Bible, the heart is where your will is. It's where your volition is. In other words, it's what you truly believe about this world is locked in and kept in your heart. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As we begin to wrap up tonight, I want to spend some time talking to two people tonight. The first is like the atheist. You were dragged here for some reason, and I'm excited you're here. I, one, I would love to meet you and hear, the, and hear why you don't believe in Jesus, or why you don't believe in God in general. I'd love to talk with you about that. But the second thing that, that I, I guess I want to em- employ you to search the toughest questions you possibly can, to ask the toughest questions you possibly can. And I've said this last week. I think that God is the author of truth. And as if we seek the author of truth, I think, or if we seek truth in itself, we will find its author, that person being God. And so ask the toughest questions you possibly can about cosmology, biology, whatever it may be. And then I guess my challenge for you is to give Jesus a chance. If you're here tonight wondering about who this guy was that lived thousands of years ago that claimed all of this miraculous stuff, then I'd love to talk with you after service about all that. The second person I want to talk to, and most of this talk is probably targeted towards this person, is the atheist Christian. In philosophy, they call this this worldview, this idea called secular humanism. And and what it essentially means is it's the person that's here tonight that grew up in church, but the Easter message means nothing anymore. It's like almost as if like you have either one, fallen in love or fallen out of love with what it actually means, or two, it just doesn't have any substance. It brings you no joy. It, it, it no longer shakes you that God died for you, right? That he came from heaven to earth to become one of us to bring you back into a relationship with, with himself. And it means that you've probably fallen out of alignment with God's will for your life. My challenge or my statement for you is that the resurrection demands that you get an eternal perspective on life. I think that's the thing that begins to wake us up. We need to see that our life is eternal, not just finite. Like this life isn't all that there really is. I love the way that a guy named C.S. Lewis said it. He said it this way. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this one. You know, the people who changed the world saw their existence kind of like this. There was an illustration that I saw a while back by a pastor named uh, Francis Cham. And I love this illustration because I think it's the best way to, to describe the way that most people, Christians included, live their life. I want you to imagine that this, this rope goes on for eternity, passes Pluto and keeps going, right? And it goes on forever and ever, and that this entire rope is a, is a metaphor for your life, that you will exist for eternity. And this little red piece up here is your life. It's the 80 to maybe 100 years that you will live here on earth, right? So often we are consumed with this little red part neglecting the eternity. How silly does that look? And we're thinking, you know, I'm going to save for this little sliver of time over here, and I'm going to go on this vacation, and I'm going to worry about these things. I'm going to stress out about these things. And we neglect our eternity, thinking about it, putting, investing in it. And so, and this even makes sense to so many Christians. That's why the Bible tells you and I not to store our treasures here on earth, because it's only this long. And another way the Bible describes our life is it describes the, the longest life you could possibly live here on earth as a mist in the ocean that is eternity. You know, yet you and I get so focused here. We worry about what our car we're going to drive, the house we're going to live in, where we're going to live, our job. We worry about all of these things and and, and that we want everything to work out the way that we want it to work out. But see, the resurrection demands that you wake up. It demands that you start viewing your life through the lens, through the perspective of eternity and stop being so concerned about the insignificant and then stop living for this, this little sliver of time here and start living for eternity. 
right? Essentially that you and I get this kind of one chance at life, and then comes this entire eternity. And so don't be, don't be fooled. Don't be consumed with, with this finite. You know, in history, it, it's, it's funny because people looked at Christians and said, like, you're crazy. I mean, like, in the, in the first century, Christians would, like, during the well, not during the first century, but during the Black Plague and, and whatever, like in all these diseases and just the, how rough the ancient world was, people would, Christians would literally sacrifice their lives to take care of other people. They would bring people in that were sick, knowing that that sick person would probably kill their families, but they knew that the commandment was to love one another. And so they brought these people into their family, and Christianity spread through the lens of love. And so all these the ancient historians have, have all looked at Christians and said that you guys are crazy. I mean, why would you live like that? Why would you be so sacrificial? Why would you pass up on things like that? This is the only life that you get to live. And then I love the Christian's response because it was so incredible. They would look back and they would say back, you're living at this tiny sliver of time is all that there is, and you're sacrificing your eternity for it. Who's really the crazy one here? As we begin to wrap up tonight, I guess I want to tell you what Easter really is because here's the deal. Easter offers you and I a free gift. And then it offers a challenge. The gift of salvation, that is the kingdom of God, that is that you get to be reconciled to your maker, to your creator. It means that you are pardoned of your sin. It's the gift of salvation and that you have a relationship with your creator. But for the Christian that already believes that stuff, the issues with challenge. It is that this world isn't all that there is. And you need to start living in accordance with that belief. I'm going to invite the band on up. They're going to lead us through um, one last song. And I, I I love this song so much because it talks about um, what the resurrection really means for our life, that God is actively working in you, that he's resurrecting you, and what that means is he's changing you, he's making you better, and he's making you whole. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the song. God, I am, uh, I'm re-falling in love with Easter. God, there could be no greater news, God, that you came down from heaven to become one of us, to bring us back to you, that there was no cure this side of heaven, so you brought heaven down to us. And so, Father, today I just, I thank you for being a God that's caring, a God that's loving, a God that moved heaven and earth to be with us, and a God that promises a place for us when this life is over. Father, I ask that you continue to convict, to continue to open the eyes of the people to hear, that are here so they can begin to see their lives through the lens of eternity. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said. Amen.